Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. We have a special edition of the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast for you today. We're here at the Virginia ASEP Conference 2023, and we literally have a Top Gun physician with us. Dr. Dr. Todd Parker is not only president of the Virginia College of Emergency Physicians, um, also has a uh, distinguished military career and has been a longtime leader in uh, Virginia advocacy for the well-being of uh, emergency patients and for emergency physicians. So, um, Todd, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we have um, a wonderful cameo here from Dr. Chris Kang. Uh, Dr. Kang is the president of National ASEP um, and has graciously come to, to Virginia for the Virginia ASEP conference. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be invited and the opportunity to meet and discuss with all of you. So thank you. Fantastic. So let's let's get started on um, what Virginia ASAP has been focused on on, on the advocacy front. Uh, one of the, the things that I've been impressed with in the Virginia chapter is how they merge the interest of the individual clinician with what they bring to, to Richmond. So um, Todd, can you tell us a little bit more about Virginia ASAP's priorities? Um, So, yes, uh, we heard from a number of our members um, this year about um, uh, many of the issues of workplace safety and that they don't feel safe in the ERs. Um, Anyone who has practiced emergency medicine over the last year or two knows that, um, you know, patients are angrier. Um, There's more uh, cases of workplace violence. There's more threats, um, uh, both verbal and physical against uh, nurses, providers, et cetera. And and there has traditionally been a bit of a reluctance to have um, uh, security in the ED and the reliance is on police. So we we heard from our members that they didn't feel safe in their workplaces. And we introduced a bill this year. Um, The bill has passed the House and the Senate. Uh, So it's just now waiting for the governor's signature that will require uh, either an off-duty police officer or a security officer trained in de-escalation techniques, uh, restraint, um, and conflict management um, 24-7, 365 in every single ER. And uh, this was a bill that, um, just to be honest, was a bit of a moonshot for us. And, Mm. you know, we wanted to uh, put it out there. Uh, We want to advocate for emergency physicians we thought this would be a several-year battle, um, and we were able to get it through this year, the first year that it came out. So, uh, so yeah, so as of w- once this bill is signed, every ER will be required to have someone like that in the ER. That's, that's impressive. Kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah. One of the challenges that uh, most bills like this have is a strong um, lobbying force from the, the hospital side, and usually the hospitals are saying, um, this isn't a legislative issue. This is something that that you should deal with on a local level. How how did you um, get the hospitals on your side? Um, well, there was a, a couple of things at play here. First of all, is we built a coalition, <clears throat> not just of physicians and uh, uh, is physician specialty societies, but the nursing um, specialty societies, their their advocates, um, and we built a pretty strong coalition of 
all the people that work in the hospitals. Um, secondly, you know, we th there's been a lot of publicity over this, right? So we um, emphasized, you know, the publicity that that workplace violence is getting. And I'll be honest with you, I had a nurse that had um, we had a, a violent patient in the ER, and the nurse very rightfully was scared. And the seven or eight minutes waiting for a police officer to show up was a pretty tense moment. Mm. And you know, she uttered some words at the end uh, after it went away, along the lines of like. I don't want to work at ERs anymore no. at all. And she's one of our best nurses. Mm. And that really hit home to me. You could just see it and hear it in her face that she's like, I'm tired of, of dealing with this. And so we, we tell stories like that. Um, you know, the hospital association had some concerns and with anything legislative, you know, it's about compromise. So, uh, so we did compromise with them in, in one area, which is they felt that there might be hospitals that don't need 24 seven security. We, mm. dis we disagree with that. Okay. Um, we think that uh, there should be a same standard at every single ER and whether you're working in a small rural freestanding ER or you're working in a, uh, an urban, you know, trauma center that the standard for the physician should be the same. Right. But, uh, we did make a concession that a hospital can apply for a waiver, but the waiver, the waiver review process must include members of the administrator administration, the medical director of the ER and the nursing director of the ER, mm. and they must all agree on the uh, on the w the conditions under which the waiver would be granted. So the physicians and nurses are stakeholders in that process, and if they don't agree with it, then then the waiver is likely not to be granted. Got it. So that we thought that was a reasonable compromise. It does seem that way. Yeah. One thing that I like about what you're doing is bringing the physicians and the nurses and their advocates together because they really are. Um, on the same team in terms of uh, creating a better workplace. Um, ASEP has been very involved in, in trying to improve or decrease boarding. Um, is your sense from talking with the nursing leaders that, that workplace violence is part of why nurses are leaving acute care nursing? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, especially in the emergency department, I, I, you know, emergency nurses love being emergency nurses. And that personality thrives in that environment. But the reality is that they have to feel safe. They have to feel valued. They have to feel appreciated. They have to feel protected. And if they're not feeling that, they're going to leave and go, go elsewhere. And, you know, I, I think ultimately that when the hospital association chose not to fight us on this and rather just to work with us on a few compromises, I think it's because they were hearing this from so many different forces. And, you know, the people that work in the hospitals are saying, we don't want to work in your hospitals anymore. Mm. I think that's a pretty powerful message. Right. So let's flip the, the question and talk a little bit about bringing joy to emergency physicians at, at work. What's your sense of ways that kind of the house of medicine, whether it's at the state or national level, can help bring joy to emergency physicians while they're on shift? Um, sure. Well, you know, first and foremost, I think is that um, you have to feel that what you are doing is valuable, right? That's probably one of the most important things for anybody, no matter what job they're in. You have to feel that your opinion is respected, that your knowledge and training is respected, and that you are, um, that you are a valued member of that organization. You're not just a cog in the wheel, right? So, uh, so I think we want to focus as Virginia ASAP this year on getting that message out that, emergency physicians are the heroes, you know, and we mm -hmm. were the, right, during COVID, we were the heroes. 
unquestionably. And it just seems like as soon as COVID went on, it all went back to the way it used to be, right? Right. So we need to do a better job of not just playing defense, but going on offense. And there's so many issues with scope of practice, with, um, with you know, the workplace issues, with reimbursements. There's so many issues where we're constantly playing defense that we want to flip the script and, uh, and really go on offense about what emergency medicine does, that we are the ones that go to work when nobody else goes to work. We are the ones that see the patients that nobody else will see. We are the ones that whenever a physician says, I'm not sure what to do with the patient, what do they say? Go to the ER, right? We're yep. the ones who receive those patients. And that is uh, incredibly valuable right? Um, and uplifting. And, if, and we need to do a better job of communicating that. And that's, I think, what we're going to focus on. Perfect. You know, many of the problems that we find when we go to the legislature is a lack of understanding or true appreciation of what it's like to work in an ER. Mm. And so we need to get out in front of that and not just assume that it's obvious, but educate people on that. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and you brought up an important uh, subtopic there, which is scope of practice. Um, I think it's important when we think about delivering high quality care that we have the right person in the right place to treat the right patient. What What is Virginia ASAP working on in terms of scope of practice? Well, like many states, uh, we legislation is introduced every year um, regarding, for example, nurse practitioners uh, getting independent practice. And uh, several years ago, um, when we realized that independent practice was probably going to happen in Virginia, we pivoted to, rather than trying to say, you know, drawing the line in the sand and don't cross this line, we pivoted to, let's make it about training, okay? And we were successful in arguing that physicians don't learn to take care of patients in medical school. They learn to take care of patients in residency. And that's where you learn how to practice independently, right? So, um, we wanted to create as much of an equivalence to residency training as was possible within the limited constraints of, of the nurse practitioner uh, training program. So, uh, so the bill was passed and agreed on of five years, 1,800 hours per year for a total of 9,000 hours after NP school in the area which you want to practice. Mm. So if you want to be an independent family practice nurse, 
uh, nurse practitioner, then you have to do 9,000 hours in five years in family practice. If you wanted to work in an ER, 9,000 hours there. You have to be under the supervision of a physician who then you know, signs off on your, uh, on your ability to do independent practice. So, <clears throat> um, but of course now they're trying to whittle away at that. And this year there was a bill for zero, zero years and zero hours um, after NP school. Um, and we were able to, uh, to defeat that. Um, they tried to negotiate it down to two hours. We were able to defeat that. They then moved, I'm sorry, uh, two years. They mm -hmm. tried to then increase it to three years, and that was starting to gain some traction, but um, our lobbyist was able, to, uh, was able to get that killed also um, for this year. So, so the good news with that, what we hear every year from our legislators mm -hmm. is show us the data. Show us the data that because you know the NPs are going to them saying, "Hey, look, we provide the same level of care. Patients are happier for much lower cost." That's what they're hearing over and over and over. And we say that's not true. And they say, "Show us the data, right?" And there isn't a lot of data. But every year that we can push this off, more studies are being done mm -hmm. um, and more data is coming out. So we're starting to see that data now, um, which is giving us you know more ammunition to uh, to fight this with. Yeah, there was a recent VA study that showed that nurse practitioners practicing on their own in emergency departments have um, outcomes that weren't as good as uh, in working in team-based environments with with physicians. They ordered more tests. There were more uh, more bounce backs. Um, worse, I think worse outcomes and uh, more hospitalizations, increased referral to specialists, increased testing, and overall increased cost to the healthcare system even when you take into account the lower labor costs that, that they're paid less. So they still were much more expensive with worse outcomes. And that's yeah. pretty powerful. And that was, that, there was no agenda. You know, there, that was not a study done by physicians or people. This was an independent group um, that, that did this. And they have a pretty robust uh, database to work from, 1.1 million visits you know, from, from Veterans Administration ER visits. Yeah, and, and just to personalize it a little bit, I personally didn't feel like I was a half-decent emergency physician until probably the end of my second year of residency. Like, if somebody said during the middle of second year, oh, why don't you go, you know, be an ER doctor on your own, do some night shifts, I'd be like, no way. I am not, I, I am not capable of giving patients the right care at that, at that point. I think it is, it is very obvious to, to me and, and most emergency physicians that our training is hard, that our training is there for a reason, and our patients deserve that level of, of care when they go to an emergency department. Yeah, the, the training is critical, and, and I, I use this exact same example, that I always say a, a, uh, a mid, or like a second year, second half of the year EM resident, is that's probably the most dangerous time. Because at that point, they know the, they know the medicine, right? But they haven't seen enough patients yet to know exactly when the patients aren't following the cookbook you know they're right. there when the patients are deviating from that and that's where sheer volume of patients comes in you know, it's the whole uh, malcolm gladwell right you know the ten thousand right. hours you know the it's that just the idea that you have to have the numbers and the volumes of patients and i will give credit so the va study was not all uh, uh doom and gloom for nurse practitioners because it did show that nurse practitioners with with a large number of years you know the ones with the most years practicing um actually had outcomes fairly similar to physicians. Mm -hmm. So we maintain we are not against nurse practitioner independent practice. 
we want to make sure that there's adequate training before they are practicing independently. And I think the VA study shows that, that with adequate training, and when they do it for a long enough period of time, then, then you start to approach parity. Um, but the idea of getting independent practice right out of nurse practitioner school or after just a year or two or six months or whatever the individual state law is, um, is, is, you know, it's just, it's not acceptable. So <clears throat> we were successful this year with that. Um, we also had the PAs, uh, we're looking to start advancing some, some steps towards independent practice. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we have a closer relationship, I would say with the PAs and mm-hmm. the, it's, it's a, it's a collaborative relationship with them. So we were able to work with them and, and those bills went away this year. And, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at the future and see what comes up. That's great. And I want to conclude with a with a question for uh, Dr. Chris Kang. Um, Dr. Kang, I think one of the reasons, and I'm going to hypothesize here, one of the reasons that, that you came to the emer- the Virginia College of Emergency Physicians conference is that VASEP does a great job of representing its constituents, whether that's the physicians or uh, or the patients. Can you talk a little bit about what? What you've learned that that VASEP has done, and what might be learnings for other uh, other state chapters. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. And yes, coming to Virginia ASEP was a, a, a privilege to not only engage them, but to see the work that's been done. And I think I'd like to highlight several things. I think you've heard over the last few minutes exactly how strong of chapter leadership that we have here in Virginia, and how knowledgeable they are on the subjects. But I'd also then say for those who are concerned about, are my concerns heard? What are the priorities? I think you just heard someone who is very well familiar and who has actually operationalized it to the point where if you have a concern, I don't feel safe at work. I don't feel respected. What about my scope of practice? How do we improve overall patient access to care? This is what state leaders do. And this Mm -hmm. is exactly what the people, your own colleagues, yours and mine, who say, there's a need here. We need to stand up and do something and then actually to translate it into action. It's incredibly gratifying and actually awesome to see and deeply appreciated for those efforts, the amount of time they spend there. But if you don't think that there are people who are interested and who will actually work to realize your concerns, uh, I think this is a perfect example of this is what can be done. Well, that's great. So thanks to Todd and Chris for joining us on the Emergency Medicine Workforce podcast today. Um, In conclusion, I have uh, uh, two things. First, uh, I'm going to let Todd um, say a few more words. Well, I just want to put the word out there, and and I say this all the time. Advocacy is one of the single most important things that we can do. And most emergency physicians that I talk to feel like they would not be effective advocates. They don't know the issues. They feel like they don't know the issues well enough or they don't know how to navigate that. We are all advocates. We advocate every day for our patients, um, for patients' families, for, uh, for each other. Um, what you do in the ER every day, you are an advocate. And that's all we are doing is advocating for ourselves get involved, volunteer for uh, lobbying, volunteer to write a letter to the editor or a column, Um, you know, come to events, you know, and even if you really, if you don't feel comfortable in that environment, you know, then just come to events and help support the organizations so that we can do it for you. That's why we're here. We want to take your issues and your concerns and we want to advocate for you. And we just need your support, whether it be uh, actual support, you know, with you participating or financial support by being a member, uh, whatever it takes. Um, supporting us helps us support you. Yeah, no question. That's great. And the the question I always end with is, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? <laughs> so, you know, 
I'm going to tell a story. Um, my son, who is 16 this year, probably eight years ago, watched we watched Forrest Gump, and um, he loves it. So uh, our birthday, tra- his birthday tradition every year is that we we all make our own homemade pizzas. My wife makes this like ridiculous ice cream candy cake thing, whatever. And we all sit down and we watch Forrest Gump. And every year I think to myself, not Forrest Gump again. <laughs> and then I sit and watch it and I'm crying because I'm like, this movie is so good. So It's um, that good. What's that? It is that good. It yep. is that good. So, um, you know, if you haven't watched Forrest Gump in a while, just go back and watch it because it's really, you know, when you talk about emergency physicians and we want to feel good about what we do. I mean, there is no better feel good movie out there. I think, you know, from bringing it all together than Forrest Gump. Love it. (laughs) And Chris? Uh, Hard to follow that up, but I'll give (laughs) one movie and one book. Uh, Let me start with the movie. And uh, I was recently watching a documentary about the making of it, but uh, I'm a movie buff and I love movies from all different genres, but I'm going to say Galaxy Quest. And the reason why is because not only if whether you're a Star Trek fan or not a sci-fi fan, the way it treats that fan population and that genre in the end is very respectful. But in the end, what it also demonstrates is what happens when you have the opportunity to rise to the occasion and what happens when you're part of a team and Mm. what you can achieve. And it's humorous and it makes fun itself along the way. For a book on a more serious note, something that I asked our national board of directors to read, um, even though I don't like to necessarily describe a lot of reading activities, uh, you know, no one likes to get told you have to read a book, was High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. And the reason why the book, what it talks about is in today's age, when we potentially have very diver- divisive and diverging views, somewhere along the way, we have started to just yell at each other instead of talk with each other. And I'd like somewhere along the way for us, as much as we may have different values, somewhere along the way, we all have certain things in common. And if we're going to work our way to gaining some respect and autonomy of what we do, then we need to talk to each other. And that means being willing to listen, sometimes to acknowledge that you're right, sometimes to acknowledge you're wrong. But then what do we do with it instead of just continuing to yell at each other? So I'd encourage everybody to read the book. And, you know, it's fascinating to me because I actually just bought the book probably a week ago because one of my hospital leaders, who I respect a lot, has said, you've got to read this book. It's He goes, I, I haven't read a book in as long as I can remember that, that really changed how I approach situations <laughs> as this book does. And so it... When you brought it up, it was fascinating to me because I'm like, well, there it is. I have it. That's the right answer. Now I need to read it. Well, Todd and Chris, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your leadership with Virginia ASAP and National ASAP. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Leon. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us, or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.